0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
1: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm
0: Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Am I a sportsman? Or a competitor? If you get into one of my cars. Get in the win. That's Adam Driver in Michael Mann's Ferrari. Just one of a handful of titles we'll get to on this week's show. Mann's Ferrari is still in theaters, so is the color
1: purple and Wonka. We'll spend some time on all three of those, along with Maestro, Bradley Cooper's new film about conductor and composer Leonard Bernstein. Those reviews and more. You either win the race or you get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. Ahead on film spotting. <laughs> Welcome to Film Spotting, Josh. This seems to happen every year. It's our end of year movie orphans show, high profile films that came to theaters sometime after we recorded our big Best of Twenty Three roundtable that we're just getting to now. We're getting to discuss anyway.
0: Yeah, in some cases we hadn't seen them yet. You would you would think otherwise. We could have fit them in that three and a half hour show somewhere.
1: Yeah, you would hope, but we had a lot of cramming to do, and we had a lot to cram into that show. It was almost three and a half hours. Michael Phillips, of course, joining us along with Mariah E. Gates. And none of these titles quite made the cut, though, when we get to one of these films, I'm probably going to be finding a spot for it in my top 20 anyway I do have a change to the top 20 Josh we'll we'll get to that here in a bit. The first show of the new year is also unusual because it's sandwiched between two of our biggest shows and two of our most stressful shows, that best of the year roundtable and then also our year-end rap party, which we're recording live in Los Angeles. It's it's almost here. As we're recording this, we're only a few days away from the big live show.
0: Indeed, checked in on my flight status today. It is that close. Like to keep an eye on how things are progressing. Cannot mm-hmm. wait to get out there in LA. And yeah, we wanted to to make a note. I think we've shared this a couple places now, but if you are hearing this before around noon on Saturday the 13th and you want to get a ticket, you haven't, you know, pulled the trigger on that yet. Go ahead and do that. Don't wait until you get there because we're going to be at Regal LA Live. Great venue, but there won't be an opportunity to buy a ticket at the door. So 645 doors will open. 715 is the show time. And if you're going to join us, don't have a ticket yet. Go ahead and get that online right now. Yeah, the show really can't come soon enough. For those of us here in the Midwest, I
1: was out in the driveway for hours today dealing with, I don't know, 10 inches of snow. At least. And the temperatures when we actually come back from LA, I think are set to be around minus four. Oh no. So so maybe I'm I'm just gonna stay there, yeah, really, and not not come back.
0: Why couldn't the cold snap be like, you know, about three days right when when they're out there and that when we're Mm -hmm. out there and then we warm up and we come back? That would be nicer. I'll, I'll
1: stay out there with you. I think Michael Phillips will be there with us. Mia Lee Vicino will be there, possibly some other special guests. You will have to be there to find out. Plus, of course, you'll be hanging out with a room full of awesome film spotting listeners. And for those of you who won't actually be there at Regal LA Live, you'll hear that show and you'll hear all of our picks for our favorite scenes of the year next week on the radio and on the podcast. The live show is presented by Regal Unlimited, the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. So you can see any standard 2D movie anytime with no blockout dates or restrictions. And if you want to watch a movie in a premium format like 4DX or IMAX, your Regal Unlimited membership gets you into those premium experiences at a reduced cost. And, you know, if you're like me and you like to munch on some popcorn when you go to movies, your unlimited pass also allows you to save on snacks. You get 10% off all non-alcoholic concession items. That means, Josh, if you're planning to see just two movies this month, you really need Regal Unlimited. It pays for itself, and you can sign up now in the Regal app or at regmovies.com slash unlimited. Our listeners get 10% off for a three-month subscription, but they have to use our code. And what is that code, Josh? Filmspot23. We'll get to Bradley Cooper's Maestro, plus some Wonka talk, and Josh, you've got thoughts on the color purple, which I still need to catch up with. Here in the pole position is Michael Mann's Ferrari, which, yes, has Adam Driver as Enzo Ferrari talking about and driving some very fast cars, but also features the great Penelope Cruz in one of the standout performances of the year as Ferrari's estranged wife and business partner, Lara. You should
0: assign me control of your stock in the company and the freehold. Uh, So I can deal.
1: Because Henry Ford won't deal with a woman.
0: No. Because if it comes to a deal, it'll be hard and fast. I have to have all the cards in my hand.
1: Well, half the cards are in my hand.
0: Laura, what do you want me to say? Mr. Ford, we have a deal, but first I must wait until I ask my wife for permission? Yes, you can say that.
1: You know what? I'm going to give you power of attorney over my stock so you can deal. For half a million dollars.
0: I don't have half a million. You will if you
1: make a deal. We haven't actually had a new Michael Mann film, Josh, since 2015. That was the cyber thriller Black Hat with Chris Hemsworth. At his best, the auteur behind Heat and Collateral and Thief and The Insider provides genre thrills while also bringing a seriousness to his characters and his subject matter. You recently became, round of applause here, a man completist. Mm, Thank you. Catching up with a film I haven't seen. It's the only one in his filmography I do still need to see. You saw 1983's Psy Oddity, The Keep. And as I recall from looking at your letterbox ranked list, it came in pretty low.
0: Yeah. Psy Oddity? Was that, is that what you called it? Because I don't know what that is. Sci it Oddity? Right. I don't know. No, I like that. Yeah. Let's go with Psy okay. Oddity. The Keep was a journey. L- like you, I realized a little bit to my surprise, it was the only one of man's movies I hadn't seen. It was pretty quick. I had a couple extra hours. So I thought, let's do this. Glad I saw it. But yeah, it's his second film and it's at the bottom of my man rankings. Well, we could start there. We could see where Ferrari. Sits on your
1: Michael Mann grid. But, you know, I can't help but turn this into a little competition. Classic film spotting bit here. Forget Ford versus Ferrari. It's Ferrari versus Maestro. They're both biopics. Depending on what pedestal you put an automaker on, they're both about artists, certainly cultural icons. They both focus largely on each great man's dysfunctionally codependent relationship with his wife. And both wives have had to come to terms with their husband's obsessiveness and obsessive philandering. I'll tip my hand here. One of these two films about a master craftsman is directed by one. The other is made by a director with a flair for the ostentatious who may someday become one. Is there a clear winner for you as there was for me? And in case it's not clear, I'm calling that master craftsman Michael Mann.
0: Yeah, I mean, when we used to do these for a couple of years, a couple of great years in our heyday, Adam, where we'd fight over two movies versus mm-hmm. over the holidays. Uh, generally, we did that because one of us took a hard stand for a film one took a hard stand against. I don't think that's the case here. I have a feeling we are both going to be fans of Ferrari and have issues with Maestro. I know that to be the case. Maestro has come up in some of our conversations since we've both seen it. But yeah, Ferrari. I haven't talked to you about. I'm eager to do it. It's very much top tier man for me. I was surprised as well to realize it'd been that long since Black Hat, which I liked well enough, but, you know, sort of felt like a late career, interesting effort, but maybe far removed from some of his highlights. And then we get Ferrari, which spoiler going back to that rank list, it's number four for me. And I... Did need to see this twice to really go for it. I will say that we can get into some of the things that held me back that maybe I didn't get entirely over uh, with that second viewing, but I was able to set them aside that second viewing and just fall in love with the ways Ferrari revisited, as you've hinted, some of man's typical obsessions, Mm -hmm. but with a slightly different style, a sunnier daytime style, I Came, I've come to think of man as like neon at night, right? That that's, that's when he does his stuff. And we get, you know, a significant night sequence here. The race itself at the end, it begins the middle of the night. But yeah, there's a lot of Italian sunshine here that is nonetheless not painting a very rosy picture. We see no. an obsessive man in driver's Ferrari who lives according to an inner code that, Seems to be the only way he can live the way he wants to live, but comes at great cost to those around him. And interestingly, particularly for Ferrari, being a car racing movie, one of those elements to this code is time. The way Enzo Ferrari is always fighting against time. It seemed to me... Maybe as much as Oppenheimer, that a ticking clock was going on in the background somehow in Ferrari. I don't know if that was literally the case on the soundtrack or if that was just how the filmmaking felt and the intensity of the scenes felt, or the fact that driver checked his watch, literally checked his watch in almost every every scene. But I think that is what made the movie especially interesting as this exploration of the tyranny of time, how there's never going to be enough of it for any of us, but for someone like Ferrari, whose passion with racing is about being faster than others, creating cars and engines that will be capable of breaking records. Uh, That tyranny was an especially heavy load for him to bear. And, you know, we can talk as well. I, I think you can see this in titles like Thief, his debut which we watched i think for the f- first time for both of us last year no i'd seen it you'd seen it okay it was a first blind time for cow. me yeah and heat of course you know probably his most beloved film time is essential in both of those characters are fighting against time it's a tool that they use but also hems them in and so to see that played out again here in this different setting this mid century italian setting made ferrari quite a thrill and showcased man back at the top of his game, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In this
1: case, and with characters who choose the professions they do in Michael Mann's films, especially the case here in Ferrari, your time almost certainly will come. That most often means death and death and ghosts. As he talks about them, he refers to at one point, actually at a couple different points, he talks about friends of his who he lost in a race 24 years ago, the same race, dear friends of his. And all you can do is accept it, accept that that's the deal you've made basically when you got in that seat and you move on from there. In a lot of ways, you see how these characters overlap with some of those other characters you mentioned, including Neil Macaulay from heat. I needed two times as well. I had seen Ferrari before we did our best of 2023 top 10 show and I gave on that on that show in 11 through 19 this is the one that I think now is snuck somewhere into that that 11 through 20 I'll go ahead and round it out with a full 20 the rewatch was so rewarding for me as well I will say this part of what I think affected me the first time Josh was simply Watching it at home, and I don't mean missing out on the incredible visuals, though, of course, that would be better on a big screen, but the sound. I really found myself multiple times clicking the subtitles button. I watched a screener. I was hoping I could just understand the characters a little more, and I think that's just because of the Italian accent, and maybe we'll talk more about that as well, that some of the characters are employing. And it's a movie where a lot of characters speak in very hushed, Tones, not big proclamations, and I really had to lean in. But knowing that, the second time I did lean in, and I I found myself processing the film a lot more. We'll get into Maestro and that that competition I've I've posed here, but the comparison for me was instructive because the thing I found lacking in Maestro, that man, and I'll say his screenwriter deliver Troy Kennedy Martin is credited as the writer, though he died in in two thousand nine. They deliver the stakes. There are three narrative strands here to this film that all connect so neatly and are so full of dramatic tension. We've got the race, the Mille Mila, which he's going against Maserati. There's stakes there. That's his big competition. They also need to be successful in this race really to continue their businesses, right? Like their entire companies and their legacies in that regard are on the line here with this race. Then you've got his relationship with Lena, who's played by Shailene Woodley, who he's had a son with. And you've got the dilemma of whether or not he's going to recognize his son as his son publicly and whether or not he'll keep her happy. And that relationship with Lara, Penelope Cruz and maintaining the arrangement they have. As he says at one point, they have history. And that's the, the tidiest way of summing up what is a very complex intense yeah. Bis- relationships
0: and romantic and family That's history it, it's, right yeah so it's-
1: all these things connect all these things intertwine recognizing the son also means that he has an heir so there's continuity for his business, the company continuing after he's gone, but also that legacy. so they all connect as I said and I was so curious to see how they would all play out because this story was one that was was unknown to me and then, The filmmaking, of course, we have to talk about not just the way he approaches the racing scenes, but there are two just standout Rovero sequences Mm -hmm. in this film. And hopefully we have the same two here. And this gets back to what you said about time and how these men all live by the clock. And in this case, specifically, they live by stopwatches. There's a sequence in church early in the film where i'm I'm pretty sure mass is being conducted, and yet there's like eight men, including Ferrari himself, who are all tied to Ferrari. They all work for him, who know that Maserati has a racer in town who's trying to break their record, their speed record. And the implication is is that they they can hear it. That they're, that they're close, that they know it's going on, I think, that they hear the gunshot.
0: Yeah, that's it. On right? second watch, you know, before I thought this was a real stretch of magical realism, but on right. second watch, I'm like, okay, they're suggesting they're actually close enough to the track they can hear yes, the starting they can gun. hear it.
1: So they they know the race has started and they know the race has ended. And each one of them are timing it. Yeah. And I love that it is each one of them. Some of them are sitting right next to each other, like four guys in a row. It's not that they're going to depend on one guy no, to do it. It's a control it's all thing. Yeah, it's all their instinct. That's what they as professionals do, and they all want to see it for themselves. So you get that sequence, which I love, which in its own way, too, is is a little funny for a movie that isn't sunny overall and is very dark and dealing with some heavy themes. There are some great lines in this film, individual lines in this film, and moments like that, I think, where you kind of have to see the humor of these men doing something a little bit blasphemous while masses is is being conducted. But then, Josh, the other
0: incredible sequence here. here. So, yeah, yeah, I want to jump on your point about it being funny because it's absolutely amusing how the priest is delivering his homily and trying to cater to them, right? Yes. Talking about how their acts, of molding steel that's a creative act that mirrors god's creativity and here's this guy like trying to meet them where they're at Uh, because you get the impression that the factory workers and the engineers are required to attend mass i don't know if it's just out of respect or ferrari you know demanded this or what so you have this guy trying so hard to meet him where they're at. And then, as you say, they're just watching their stopwatches. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's, it's very funny. And also, how bold, Adam, this is, you know, it's a parallel editing sequence. We are getting mm-hmm. shots of the racer, the Maserati right. racer, back and forth. <laughs> and we see that he's chasing down that record and about to break it. What do we have here? This is a blatant reference to maybe one of the most famous parallel editing sequences ever, right? The baptism ass- assassination sequence in The Godfather.
1: That's what so, I thought of, too. So how yeah.
0: bold of man fairly early mm-hmm. in this film, this this Italian-themed film, to be like, yeah, I know it's going to come to your mind right away, right. but I'm doing this anyway. And, yes. and pulling it off. I mean, obviously, yeah. it's this movie is not in the same... In the same ballpark as The Godfather, but I think I like the boldness of even I do too. Even playing around in that territory.
1: I do as well. And then I think he whether or not he's paying homage to any other films or not, I think he takes that boldness up another step in the opera sequence. Yeah, Here again, using music right? Using this is a music moment candidate. Uh, I'll say spoilers. It's not going to be on my list when we do our live show, but it certainly is one I thought seriously about. It's an opera sequence. You have all of these different characters, except Laura, though we do see her again, cutting between different characters, different moments, flashbacks or memories. Actually, these characters are having as they each individually watch the opera and and what connects them? I think it's Laura who we see first, actually, during the sequence at home. She's chosen not to come. She's thinking about the better days, the earlier days with Enzo and with their son, Dino, who was alive, still then died when he was quite young. Then we go to enzo ferrari's mother who's a character Mm -hmm. in this film and she's thinking about the son she lost the other son when he went off to war at one point in the film she says not to enzo fortunately but she says the the wrong son died yeah is actually a line that she has and then without it all in front of me here frame by frame i love the way he ties together going into enzo's memory and then it's seeming like it's also maybe a shared memory almost of Of Lena, of the Shailene Woodley character there who is also at the opera, though they're not sitting together, of course, because they're not acknowledging their relationship or the son that they have. And it's the moment when she comes to him and says, I'm pregnant. So this is the moment when they're they're both, it seems, almost reliving the moment when they realize that he could have another son or he is going to have another child. So her her memory is this this happier one, but also one with some bittersweetness to it, considering the the acrimony that they're currently engaged in. She's thinking back on a happier time as well, and so I'll use that word connection again. The way, literally through the editing and the camera work, he connects those characters and the past and how it's still. Haunting them is really one of the beautiful sequences in the film.
0: It's so lovely. And and because of that editing, we should probably uh, cite the editor here, Pietro Scalia. It's also struck me, Adam, you know, just thinking about this movie and the way it's concerned and obsessed with time as the characters are like, what a great way to manipulate time as filmmakers to to give us this history about each of these characters. Some of these things we're learning about for the first time in this montage uh, and, and just deepening who they are as people, including, as you said, Enzo's mother, Daniela Paterno mm-hmm. plays her only a handful of scenes, but very effective ones. And we get to know much more about her. And this also has a little bit of magical realism in that you mentioned Lara, you know, isn't at the opera. I don't think his mother is either, but both of them come to the window right. of his home. And the suggestion is they can just sit by the window and hear the performance, which, of course, even if they were next door, they likely could not. But I did like how this and that earlier sequence in the church give the sense that this town is so tight-knit and close together that you can hear your neighbors across town as if they were right next door. There's, there's just a sense of both intimacy and claustrophobia that, that comes with that, and that plays really well in this sequence also.
1: Yeah, and what did you make of the race scenes themselves? What stood out to me here, and we get quite a few of them, but especially the extended sequence at the end when we get the, the Mille Mila, is the way man, not surprisingly, but the way man focuses on the cars, and he focuses on the men. So it's not a lot of real kinetic Cutting. It's not about watching a bunch of gear shifting or any dials in the race car. It seemed to me, Josh, that it was the cars themselves, a lot of times wheel to wheel with each other. It's the machine and it's the man. It's a lot of eyes. It's, it's a lot of us looking into kind of the the window into the man. And that's what a lot of these scenes are really constructed on. It made me think of what we often will praise when we watch a really good musical, which is we want to see the dancers. We want to see longer shots. We don't need the quick cuts. Let's Let's see the talent on display. Let's watch the movement of it. And that's what I felt like we got here, where we were very often focused on the cars themselves and mm-hmm. how they were being maneuvered.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. It's it's just beautifully sustained because this race, as I said, starts in the middle of the night. It goes across the Italian countryside into the next day at least and it held me. I was gripped the whole time and I'm someone who probably if, you know, would have said if I go the rest of my life without an- another movie car racing scene, I'll probably be okay. Mm-hmm. I found this incredibly gripping. I think you're right. It's tied to the individuals. We know there are four or maybe five Ferrari racers whose subplots and individual experiences and personalities we're tracing. I think mm-hmm. this sequence does a good job of honoring each of them in their own way. And there is even just some lovely flourishes that accentuate and foreshadow something mm-hmm. that might happen later in the race. I'm thinking of one moment where they're flying through a town and the camera is following the cars, as you say, they make a turn and it just stays. On its path, and swoops straight into a building that has this ferocious face carved into it. I forget if it's actually a lion or, or a, a mm-hmm. human's face. Yeah. The camera, but, the, but the camera leaves the cars mm-hmm. and brings us into this frightening image. Yeah. that prefaces it something does. that's going to happen later. So, so yeah, just beautifully constructed. I would say, you know, this is the third standout set piece that. This movie has, but it is more than these individual set pieces, for sure. As you suggested, it's weaving it into the narrative so beautifully. So did anything hold you up? Because I did have, as much as I appreciated what he was doing physically, I did have an Adam Driver issue here. I did as well, Josh. Okay. And I I feel bad about it because... Which I never thought I'd say, ever. (laughs) Exactly. Big fans, both of us. But, yeah, and this is this is kind of the lamest critique to offer, but I did have that experience where I never forgot that it was Adam Driver. Yeah, I'm with you. And, maybe it's just an age thing. Mm -hmm. I I do think, as I said, the physicality of his performance, watching what he was doing with his hands was so fascinating Mm -hmm. to me. I think it's crucial to who this guy is and the bearing he holds, the reputation he has and how he, he kind of pushes his way into rooms and in conversations using his hands that establishes that reputation, all of that stuff. I think is so great. Watch his hands particularly. There's the great scene where he talks about the deadly passion and the terrible joy to his racers. He's he's kind of lecturing them, right? I think he's excellent in that scene, except that he's Adam Driver every Mm -hmm. moment. And is that just me? Is that a failure of me to immerse myself in the performance?
1: I don't know. But if it's your failing, then it's my failing as well because it certainly didn't hold me back from loving this film. Right. But I was constantly aware of, of hearing Adam driver's voice. And I think when you're making a commitment to playing an Italian character and using an Italian accent, but that Italian accent doesn't feel transformative enough, Mm. it, it feels like you're putting on a voice and that's how it felt to me here, but, but almost not enough. You know, it, it wasn't consistent enough. It wasn't transformative enough. I felt like I was listening to Adam Driver the whole time. And I I do think his physicality and some other elements of the film made the performance work, but there was something I I felt was lacking. And then I know there's been some criticism of her online, but it's justified. Josh, with Shailene Woodley's accent work or lack thereof, I'm just saying, honestly, when I watched the film the first time, I guess I didn't pay enough attention to her last name in the film. I believe it's Lardi, but I thought she was American. Sure, yeah. I truly thought that that character had somehow come to Italy as an American and he met her after the war and they got married. And there's also a moment later in the film, I noted this, where they're having an argument about something and he says something, I think like, oh, you think I'm being too Italian? You think I'm being too bourgeois? And she says something like, you know, I'm not a beatnik or don't call me a beatnik. And so the way that he said that, almost like she was from a different culture and her using the term beatnik just made me think, okay, maybe she really is. But there was no sense for me watching this film that she was an Italian woman Yeah. ever watching it. I'm with you. And I, I only knew she was Josh because I saw people critiquing her on social media after I saw it the first time and I went, wait,
0: she, she's Italian. She sticks out incredibly. I will say that, you know, technically, if you think of Lena as a character, I think Woodley is hitting every beat she needs to hit there. You know, it's it's this is a woman who's clearly been very patient, long suffering in her way. I got a sense of who this woman was as a person, even independent of Enzo. But there was, and maybe it does come simply to just the presentation of, you know, and the, and the accent, there's just something that every scene she was in, she stuck out like a sore thumb. Yeah. And, and I hate to play, you know, I of all people should not play accent police. Uh, and I try not to do that. I, I did find, you know, drivers distracting and Woodley's lack of one, I guess you could say. And then even when it comes to Penelope Cruz, maybe this isn't fair. I, you know, I think she by far gives the best performance, but here's the truth. When I hear Penelope Cruz speaking English in other films, it generally comes with an accent. So perhaps an Italian would hear Penelope Cruz and and say that her accent was just as bad. But even aside from that, I think Cruz just gives the most consistently rich depth Mm -hmm. of feeling, never for a moment doubting who this Laura was and Mm -hmm. what she was going through as well suffering and fighting for the fight that she was going through every day of her life. And these raging emotions she had both for Enzo and for their past. And this is before she even comes to learn some things she comes to learn. And then again, it ties into time, right? She Enzo has less and less time for her every day. And, and she begins to realize that this becomes the tyranny of time for her, and it's a tragic performance, and and just that scene, that early scene in the mausoleum for their son, who yes died as a boy a year before the events of this film. So this is fresh, and she just sits there by herself. Enzo does this as well, separately from her, and they both have a crying scenes. Driver is given some dialogue, and as we've discussed, it's not a bad performance; handles it fine. Cruise comes in, doesn't have any lines to work right. with. Right. And it just like kind of kind of shows you how full-blooded a performance can be without a single word.
1: Yeah, that really is one of her standout sequences though there are so many in this film. And what a great way, even visually, to tell us everything we need to know about that relationship and how they're dealing with their grief in different ways. We literally see them cross paths with each other, going, In and out of the the mausoleum and we've just watched him, as you said, have this dialogue with his son, Dino, and I think maybe this is misplaced a little bit here, Josh, but she's a character who's never shy about expressing what's on her mind. She talks a lot in the film when she has scenes and she expresses herself very vividly Mm -hmm. to Enzo and to others and Enzo is a little more reserved And quiet. And yet, what does man do in that scene? He he reverses it, right? And we get we get Enzo being the one who talks to his son, has all of that dialogue. And when she comes in, the camera just stays on her face. And yet there's so much happening. The the same movement, the same dramatic movement that we see from the beginning of Driver's scene to the end is all there in her sequence, and maybe more. But without her actually saying anything. It's all there in her face. It's all there in her eyes. And so a great touch there by man, a great way to showcase the the differences between those two characters without there being any redundancy and us us seeing each character have their moment with their deceased son, but have them be variations on the same thing. Mm -hmm. They're dramatically different. And yet dramatically, they're also very much the same. And she gets so many sequences here in this film. This is where maybe we'll start to transition into maestro a little bit, Josh, because it's another point of contrast for me where none of the scenes, and we'll talk about some of them, none of the scenes between the husband and wife and maestro felt like they had the history or the dramatic tension and stakes, Mm. like every conversation that occurs between the two characters
0: here in this film. I'd say we'll get to it. I'd say there's one sequence that stands out, but for the most part, you're right for Maestro. One last bit,
1: though there's so much more we could talk about here with this film. Something that stood out to me the second time that I really liked, a touch in terms of the writing. Enzo talks about with his drivers that if you get distracted, remember he's talking about- one of his drivers, De Portago, but actually it's who De Portago replaces. De Portago replaces Castellotti and he's going for the record that Maserati had taken there earlier in the film. And there is an accident. This is early in the film. He's not a major character, not a spoiler. There's an accident and he's talking about how, well, it's, it's really his fault. Actually, he kind of blames someone else, but I won't get into it who he blames. But he is blaming the driver mm-hmm. as well because he says he is thinking about the woman that was there at the track. I think they're engaged to be married, and there was too much pressure on him. And when you lose your concentration as a driver, these are the kinds of things that happen to you. And what does she, what does Laura accuse Enzo of later in the film, losing his concentration and focus when their son was dying mm-hmm. and and because that, of that Lena. symmetry because of exa- exactly so because it's of another woman another so woman the symmetry the symmetry is very much there and I assume very
0: much that is a intentional turn a bitter turn of the knife that yeah slipped by me the first time as well but whew, when she pulled that out it hurt Ferrari is currently
1: playing in wide release if you see it and agree or disagree with our thoughts we would love to hear from you feedback at filmspotting.net that look- that leaves me weak you with your eyes across the table
0: technique fascinating because we come from an aristocratic european family on your mother's side and your father is american and he's jewish and then you moved to chile because your father that's amazing i remember all this, I, isn't it? I remember everything <laughs> i don't know how <laughs> <laughs> so he moved to chile because of your father's business and uh now now you firmly planted to new york city studying piano yeah. but you're actually studying acting and that is a career which demands the versatility to play a panoply of characters and that is my conclusion oh. <laughs> <laughs> that you my dear are very similar to me uh, how because well, you had to take all the pieces of all the pieces of all the bits of you that are scattered across these varied landscapes and form create the veritable person that stands before me now and
1: how is that you just asked me and i just don't I know, told I, know you. I know okay russian uh, orthodox too.
0: from bradley cooper's maestro that's cooper with carrie mulligan the meet-cute between Cooper's Leonard Bernstein and Mulligan's Felicia Montalegra. Maestro played in limited release in late November before coming exclusively to Netflix in December. So here we go, Adam. We've got a famous person biopic. Not exactly birth to death, but it does begin with an older aging Bernstein reminiscing about his light wife, Felicia, and jumps around a bit From there, I'd say we get a fair chunk of Bernstein's life, mostly beginning with his 1943 debut at Carnegie Hall. We're on record already on this show. Neither of us big fans. Is it fair to maybe start with something we liked and then get into it? Sure. Yeah. And what I liked is the opening of the film. I
1: loved the first real shot. I say the opening. Let me be clear. There is that later in life. Bernstein sitting at the piano reminiscing. He's being filmed and he's talking about his relationship. Then we go back into the story. That part's in color. We go back into the past and we start with this black and white shot. The sequence is in black and white, those memories. But we start on him getting the phone call, waking up, getting the phone call that he's going to conduct today, that the conductor's taken sick. This is the breakout. This is the moment where Leonard Bernstein basically became Leonard Bernstein, right? And the way Cooper shoots, and and the aspect ratio here is is more square and and confined to begin with, and then it opens in the dark as he's waking up to the phone call, and the the only light, there's a curtain that's completely blacking out the light that's coming in through a window, except for the very edges, and it basically creates a proscenium. And for me watching it, at least at home, watching it on Netflix, it was like an optical illusion where I was sure that we opened on a scene that was, in fact, a stage. I thought we were looking at a stage and it was a darkened theater and the stage curtain was down with light emanating from the back. But then, of course, you do see him. You see the character emerge in the dark, in the shadows, take that phone call. And the way that scene transitions to the the scene of conducting itself and early in the film, there are so many wonderful transitions like that between sequences, Josh, where it flows, It literally flows together with the camera and the editing. There's a fluidity sequence to sequence that felt to me deliberately and effectively musical, like the m- movements of a symphony. Everything here is connected. Unfortunately, I didn't love any other shot in this film as much as I love that opening shot. And that that transition technique was at some point abandoned.
0: Yeah, but it wasn't abandoned for any more reticent filmmaking. I would say no. I, I got, you know, you describe it well, it's bravura, there are bold choices, it's probably well done, but that opening sequence for me was a red flag. And it was showy in a way where I thought, oh boy, we're going to get a lot of talent shoved down our throats, aren't we? And maybe it put me off to a degree that I couldn't recover from. And I hesitate to say this because I don't want any filmmaker to ever not take a big swing. Not not to go strong, to go hard and put on the screen what they have in their dreams. I can't tell you what the line is between, you know, someone doing that in a movie, even like poor things, which I didn't like quite as much as you, but, and did wear me down eventually, but didn't put me off ever. You know, even as I was getting exhausted by it, I I was on board with the ambition. Maestro exhausted me. By that opening sequence as much as hmm. the entirety of poor things did. And you mentioned it, those transitions, yeah. the, the first maybe 20 minutes are so full of these, like it, not even it's, it's like not just how can I get artfully from this portion of Bernstein's life to the next? It's like, what is the most ostentatiously artistic mm-hmm. way I can do that. And that's what I'm going to do again. Why is that bad? And in another case, I might say, bravo. I can't tell you. It's like a visceral reaction. And I had that throughout Maestro. I was supposed to say something nice, wasn't I? I'll get to that. Yeah, (laughs) you failed. But I'll just say a word that comes up that Carrie Mulligan uses early on in their courtship. He's choosing among ties. And she says about one of them that he's picked up a bit garish. And at that point, it was like, ding. That's it. That's it, Felicia. <laughs> you, you have named what is holding me back from this entire movie. Now, I will say, as you mentioned earlier, we were talking about Ferrari, that between them, Mulligan and Cooper, there's there's not an authentic moment, something like that that, that you that you really believed in. And I would agree for the most part. They, they seem to be playing characters. even Mulligan, who, you know, is, I don't think giving a bad performance here, but not working at the level we're accustomed to. Maybe it's the material. Very well could be, but I do think that late in film section where, and this is not spoiling anything, but Felicia is diagnosed with cancer. They have had years of separation at this point. We're not even sure if they're on very good terms, but Bernstein does manage to rouse himself out of this sort of late life carousing period. The movie suggests he was getting lost in to return home. And be with her. And I do have to say that that whole section, I thought, nailed something relatively authentic in two people who, again, the same word that came up in Ferrari, had significant history, meeting a significant moment with, despite all the past that had not been good between them, managing to reclaim what had been good in this crucial time. That part moved me. It genuinely moved me, which is saying something because, as I've already suggested, I was way out by the time yeah. <laughs> By the time we got there. So it pulled me in a little bit. I think Mulligan is at her best in those scenes. But yeah, it was a respite for me from the rest of the film.
1: Yeah, we really saw the exact same film other than maybe the opening scene and maybe even the first 20 or 30 minutes because there was a portion of the film based on that opening. And I'm not going to try to convince you you're wrong about the opening scene, Josh. But actually you were of course right in terms of what it portended but at least that opening shot was something that wasn't just flashy and in fact it's it's not flashy in the way we might think of it the camera is not moving it's just the way the shot is lit but is it drawing a lot of attention to itself yes it is but at least it's engaging me as a viewer it's making me me focus my eyes and i'm i'm trying to process what i'm seeing and we take those flourishes that come in those transitions and i honestly thought for Again, I don't remember the exact amount of time. I didn't put it in my notes. But for 20 minutes or so, I thought, I don't know why people are being down on this film. This feels like a masterpiece to me. That's <laughs> where I was with this movie. And, and then it just eventually wore me down. And it's the combination of that overdone artfulness, the calculation of it. You said it. I was thinking the same thing. I don't know how to articulate it. I don't know if you can. And this is, of course, subjective. Other people listening or watching this film could feel exactly the opposite as we do. But why is it that we can watch some of the bold strokes taken by someone like Martin Scorsese or even Michael Mann, Killers of the Flower Moon, Ferrari, and we see what Cooper's doing here? And it feels to us as viewers overdone. Mm -hmm. It feels too ostentatious. It feels too calculated as opposed to something that feels Organic. I think usually the way we try to articulate that is, do I feel like it's truly serving the movie and the characters? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it serving the stakes? Is it serving the overall narrative? Am I taking something away from those choices that's that's amplifying the script? Or do I feel like it's the director really trying to find a way to impress us? And that's the case here. That- and that's the case here. And I know, again, that's a fine line you may hear this someone else and think we're crazy, but that's the feeling we both had with this film. And I'm going to get into a little bit of the performances here now, but also tie it back to Cooper and what I mean. That helped. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Let me, that helped
0: clarify, you know, the way I've been thinking about it too. I think you're right. I think calculated is a very helpful word. I basically came away from Maestro feeling that the movie itself, how it moved, what it showed us, how it showed us, what it did was more interested in Cooper, Bradley Cooper as an artist than Bernstein. I know. So this would have been off-putting if it was a movie about, I don't know, a hard scrabble high school English teacher, but the fact that it's about one of the artistic American giants of, mm-hmm. you know, what the 50s on, whatever the timing was, is makes it even worse. That that is what I came away feeling is that the movie wasn't quite as interested as in Bernstein.
1: Yeah, actually that that perfectly transitions back to where I was going, Josh. I'll try to illustrate what you're talking about and what I felt watching this film too and tie it to the performances and some of these choices. And let me say this about performances too, because I know some people are very high on Bradley Cooper here. Most people are even higher on Carrie Mulligan. Of course, there are performances I love in movies that I don't love and vice versa. But generally, I'm someone who struggles with appreciating a performance purely on a technical level. If I'm otherwise not invested in the characters and their story, and I was not invested in this story or these characters at all, the, the lack of stakes really is, is what that was about for me. But what I was struggling with as I consider Cooper, and especially as I consider Mulligan is do I dislike the performances because I found them overly calculated, overly self-conscious, overly mannered, or do I feel that way because I just didn't care? I just didn't care about the conflict. I didn't care about what was at stake between the characters. And so whatever they were doing performance-wise, it wasn't able to overcome that. And if I'm never drawn to them as characters, well, then I'm not really drawn to them as performers. So there's a sequence, maybe midway, 60% of the way through the film, where they're in the Hamptons or wherever they go, like their little summer home. And... Bernstein has brought a guy with him, a man with him, a younger man who is clearly his lover. And he and Felicia go out to have a conversation, just the two of them, where they're sitting out by their pool while everyone Mm -hmm. else is inside. And this is almost a two-minute scene where Cooper has planted the camera. It's still, so maybe it's not garish, but it's garish in the sense that he's not – put the camera anywhere near them. He's right. put it like a mile away. Right. So we're very aware of the distance between us and the characters and that we can't really see their face or what the performers are doing. We only hear their voice. He keeps it still in this extreme long shot. It is calling attention to itself. It's adding nothing to the drama that's playing out. I'm not going to suggest that the word I just used distance is meant to mirror the distance between the characters. I I don't think that's what's going on or that's not what I felt. And the substance of the scene itself is just so silly. Like I started writing down some of the dialogue today, Josh, and it's like, darling, if I've done something wrong, tell me, no, no, it's fine. Well, clearly I've misread the room. No, that's not what it's about. So it's fine. And then later she'll say like, I know you're, I know you're busy. And he'll say, no, I'm not busy. Josh, it's this inane back and forth. And the problem is I felt like almost every conversation that Cooper and Mulligan have in this film Mm -hmm. is just some version of that one, Mm -hmm. this inane back and forth, this passive aggressive kind of arguing that doesn't lead anywhere. So in that moment, I'm not struck by the writing. I'm not struck by the performances. And all I'm really thinking about is why Bradley Cooper decided to put the camera 200 yards away in this scene. Right. And there's there's I'll give you another one real quick. There's an acting moment. This is where I'll get into Cooper a little bit. And I feel bad about this because I think there's a lot of piling on. I saw it with the Golden Globes the other night. I don't know where that comes from. I I mean, I do in the sense that we've talked about how overly calculated this entire project feels. I'm going to lean into that here in a moment. But I don't hold that against Bradley Cooper personally. I don't I don't know the man. I I like some of his performances. I don't like some others. I'm I'm not paying a lot of attention to that that drama that's playing out online about him. But there's a moment with him in particular that I think for me illustrates what you were talking about as well in terms of it being about Cooper more than it's about Bernstein. It happens just a couple scenes before the one I just talked about, the same trip to the Hamptons, wherever they are. And he's talking to his daughter and she's emotional or a little upset because she's hearing a lot of rumors about her father and his relationships and she wants to know if they're true and he says no and she is very relieved she says she's relieved she thanks him for talking to her and you see the deliberation in cooper in bernstein when he's asked if it's true and you see the choice he makes and that all felt great to me that all felt exactly like it should and it had the weight that it should And then after she says, thank you for talking to me, I'm so relieved, he holds the camera on him, on his face, for what seems like 30 to 45 more seconds. Mm. It's probably only 10 or 15, but it feels like 30 or 45. And without saying anything, it's clear that what the character is processing is, I don't know that I can lie to my daughter, to her face like this. And it's like he's almost considering whether or not he's going to take back what he said and tell her the truth in that moment. we see it in his face. Cooper gives us the moment, but then he overdoes it. He insists on it. he underlines it. He makes the the experience for me watching the film was in that extended pause where the camera's just in that close-up looking at Cooper and you see the wheels turning. I became completely detached and I was only thinking about the choice. Bradley Cooper was making, not the choice Leonard Bernstein was making. And here again, I want to stress, I truly do not care about what other people are saying about Cooper online, or I haven't watched a lot of the the press clips, but a week or two after I saw this film, and I never thought there'd be any conversation about that scene of all the scenes in this film, anyone would talk about that. But I'm scrolling through social media one day, Tim and Mulligan being interviewed, and he's talking about that scene. That scene that really stood out and and so detached me. And he's talking about it, and he says something like, I'm paraphrasing here, I, I don't have the exact clip, but he says something like, it was so hard to lie to her. And let me be clear, he's not saying like me, Bradley Cooper. He's clearly saying me as Leonard Bernstein to lie to my daughter in that scene. But he says that, I thought to myself, I can't believe I maybe am going to have to change my script because— I can't do this. Like, I'm going to improvise in the moment and not lie to her, and I'm actually going to alter the script of my film because of that. And my point is, I wasn't surprised at all to hear that after the experience I had with that scene to find out that, oh, yeah, he completely overanalyzed the moment. (laughs) And, And in that moment, I was watching Bradley Cooper, the actor director go through the anguish. I wasn't watching Leonard Bernstein go through the anguish at
0: all. Yeah, there are a lot of extreme close-ups of Bradley Cooper as Bernstein in this film. And to our point about Adam Driver and Ferrari, I as well never forgot that it was Bradley Cooper. I think it's from the rare, you know, not that many, but clips I have seen of Bernstein being interviewed or conducting uh, here and there, I think it's probably you could call it a perfectly modulated Bernstein impression. You Mm -hmm. know, I I think it's, it's something if you saw him do it on Saturday night live, you'd say, yeah, that's, you know, that was, that was a good Bernstein. But I, to your point, never really forgot that Cooper was behind every gesture that this movie was making. And that goes to the, to the screenplay, which he co-wrote with Josh Singer. And as you were describing the scene between him and Mulligan, For me, that failed. And I was a little more invested in their personal stories than it sounds like you were. I I didn't know that much about Bernstein. I had never heard, um, knew anything about his marriage. And so I was curious about how this, you know, passionate marriage that they agreed it's going to be an open marriage. How in the world is this going to work? What were these people's lives like? And I never found the connecting dots between the early couple where this was an agreement between them and the breakdown of that agreement. It's its like we suddenly went to Felicia not being able to take it anymore. And that's right. completely understandable. But at the screenplay level, I don't know that we got those scenes. That may have been why it felt a little bit silly we to don't. you. It's like, yeah. well, why are they having this little spat now? Like what, what's the, you know, what, what's the deal? So, so there's a little bit of a story construction issue there as well for me i agree and uh, and yeah i you know i'm not i'm blessedly not following any of the cooper backlash myself but i will say i came out of this thinking and having a conversation with someone a few days after i'd seen it over the holidays at a gathering huge bernstein fan smart person very artistic person loved this movie and loved it for you know Being willing to portray a being a bit more critical of Bernstein maybe than than a lot of other pieces of art might be. And I feel like maybe I'm wrong on this if already the you know, the tide has turned. But it just seemed like this is going to be we're going to be dealing with this a lot come Oscar time.
1: Yeah. And I'm with you completely on the story construction. And that really is what I mean when I talk about what was here, that lack of stakes. Watching it scene to scene, I never fully understood what it was each character was after, what the conflict was. I didn't see it develop in interesting ways. I saw it play out in very redundant, you know, often tedious ways. And what happens then, this gets back to what we're talking about, the ostentatiousness and whether or not it serves the story. When you get a sequence in the film, I can fully appreciate on a technical level. The work that went into it, but also just hearing it, experiencing it through my screen. When we get the recreation of Mahler's resurrection in the cathedral, Mm -hmm. the music's incredible. It does move you to watch. But the problem is, is that in terms of the story, it should be, and the movie sort of wants it to be because it gives us this exchange. It wants it to be a moment, maybe not of reconciliation, but of these two characters Coming together and having some closure yeah, because it ends with an embrace and it ends with, with her saying something to him that she said earlier. And it's something that he's now overcome. It's something he's now solved. It should be this emotional moment between those two characters. And Josh, it's completely hollow. Again, I'm swept up by the music. I'm swept up by the way he films it. I'm swept up
0: by the way Cooper performs it. But it's empty. But did you feel like she was saying that to Leonard Bernstein or Bradley Cooper? <laughs> Great point. I, I, no, no. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm not. I'm not trying to be pithy. Like that. That was my reaction to that scene, is that she was encouraging him at how well that sequence had just been made. I, I think for me, I didn't quite go there because her specific line
1: is a reference to her saying earlier that he directs with too much anger. That there's just that there's hate. Yeah. And that he abandoned that there. Unless you're also suggesting that maybe Bradley Cooper directs with a little bit of rage. And that rage might be I really want everyone to look at me and what I've accomplished. (laughs) Maybe it could be. Yeah. All right. Maestro is currently playing exclusively on Netflix. If you see it and agree or disagree with us, we imagine there's a few of you out there who are very much Team Cooper and Team Mulligan. We would love to hear from your feedback at filmspotting.net.
0: We have a couple of ways you can help the show, if you don't mind. If you're a regular listener, or even if you're still getting to know us, take a minute and give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Believe it or not, every new rating or review we get does help us reach new listeners. We want to thank one of those listeners, Luke Stanaway, left a recent review on Apple Podcasts. Luke writes, I've been a loyal listener of film spotting for about eight years now. Adam and Josh offer some of the best insight available into film. Their approach is thorough, intelligent, and always entertaining. While their analysis and deep dives into various auteurs is certainly a highlight, one thing that sets this podcast apart from others is the host's genuine interest in engaging with listeners. I've been shouted out on the show twice, and I'm even writing this review while wearing a film spotting t shirt that I received after correctly guessing their massacre theater segment. What's more, I've just Purchase tickets to their upcoming live event in Los Angeles, where I look forward to meeting the gang in person and explaining why they're somewhat wrong about <laughs> huh. Asteroid City. Long live film spotting! Well, thank you, Luke. But I'm I can't wait to hear more in LA. I I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we're both pretty big fans. Is 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 Luke anti Asteroid City?
1: Well, I like that he added in parentheses. They're just somewhat wrong. Uh-huh. He's not going full incorrect, Josh. But you know, he was doing so amazingly with that email and then he just had to throw in that he's not a big Asteroid City guy. But you know what? We'll we'll overlook that and we'll be able to thank him in person for those incredibly kind words. Excited to do that. Another way you can support film spotting is by joining the film spotting family. In addition to keeping us doing what we're doing, your support does come with perks. You get to listen early and ad-free. You get producer Sam's weekly newsletter. You get monthly bonus shows. January, we're going to do some Oscar nomination chatter after those nominations are announced. And as a member, you also get access to the complete film spotting archive. Something like, I know we're only on episode 950 now officially, but when you add in all the extras, I'm pretty sure it's over 1,200. You can get access to all of them at filmspottingfamily.com. When you see sand here, imagine water. If you dive in, you can't reach the bottom. You dive in. Yes, it's called swimming. <laughs> I don't I don't believe you. There's Wonka himself, Timothy Chalamet in the guise of Paul Atreides in the trailer for Dune Two. Seems to be Josh, one of the most anticipated films of the new year. This weekend, as we've mentioned, we'll be in LA recording our year-end rap party. That's our scenes of the year with some special guests, and that episode will post next week. But the following week, we'll kick off the new year in earnest. With our 2024 movie preview, you can get a head start thinking about the new movie year by answering the new, deeply flawed film spotting poll question, which asks you to choose one and only one 2024 film. This does mean, for the purposes of our little stupid exercise, you'll never see any of these other films. You will only get to see this film. Which one do you choose, Josh? The options
0: are Dune Part 2, which is supposed to come out March 2, they say. I'll believe it when I see it. This is one I'm learning about for the first time right here. Could not be more excited. Mickey 17, it's Bong Joon-ho's sci-fi follow-up to Parasite, gets better. Stars Robert Pattinson, gets better. As, quote, a disposable employee who's sent to colonize a distant planet. Now, there isn't a current release date for Mickey 17, But people are hopeful for a can premiere.
1: Yeah, that might be it. And there is speculation it will come out. So this really is a flawed film spotting poll question because it turns out this film may not come out in 2024. However, at the time our producer put this document together and put these options together for the poll, Mickey 17 was on our docket. I don't remember the exact date, but it had a set release date this year. Josh looks like it's going to be pushed back. Hopefully, it's not pushed back into
0: 2025. All right. So, you've got Mickey 17. You've got Dune Part 2. Another option. George Miller's Furiosa. This one due May 24. And then Robert Eggers' Nosferatu. You would think this is coming around Halloween. But no. It's going to be a Christmas release. So, you can choose one of those. We will offer you a write-in option of other. We're going to get to a whole bunch of other titles as well on that preview show, but if you want to vote in this poll, you can do so at filmspotting.net. Do you want to betray where your head is, Josh, I mean, at this my point? My head is How still would you exploding vote? for Mickey 17, honestly. Okay. I mean, it's. I, this is a really tough poll for me, but I think that one's probably got to be it.
1: Yeah, I'm just a little bummed about it now because I'm looking at our schedule and I had it penciled in. I think March 29th is when it was supposed to open. And now now we're going to have to wait a little bit, it seems. But you can vote for it if you'd like. Just a quick glance. I don't know how you go against George Miller and Furiosa. I know. I think the, that's going to get my vote.
0: Yeah, it's I, either that or Joker too, Josh. Totally. You know me. Well, I mean, there's a reason Sam didn't put that in the poll. Runaway winner uh-huh. for all of us. Uh huh. Yeah, but it is speaking of Joker too, the the sequel element is just, I mean Mad Max Fury Road, technically a reheat itself, right? But the sequel <laughs> reheat element does maybe not give me pause about Furiosa, but does give Mickey 17 an original vision,
1: The Edge. All right, this week on our sister podcast the Next Picture Show, it's a new pairing. I love this one, Josh. A dangerous family business, an imposing aging patriarch, and a group of brothers with varying aptitudes vying to succeed him. Yes, the NPS folks have paired together Sean Durkin's wrestling family biopic, The Iron Claw, which is currently in theaters, and Francis Ford Coppola's (laughs) 1972 mafia epic, The
0: Godfather. Love this. I mean, when when they go the reasonable, obvious route, it always bears fruit right? There's so much to dig into when one movie makes you immediately think of another movie, let's compare them. But when they pull, when they pluck one, I never would have thought of yet on second thought makes perfect sense. Those are some really good conversations for the next picture show.
1: Yeah. Also new in the next picture show feed is their top 10 of 2023 show. The next picture show does post new episodes every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts back on our Best of 2023 roundtable, we announced a contest for a chance to win Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon on digital. Lily Gladstone stars Golden Globe winner, I think, Lily Gladstone, if I heard correctly, along with Academy Award winners Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro. They all star in one of the best films of the year, according to me and and you, Josh, even if you left it out of your top 10 somehow misguidedly. You'll never forgive me. I won't. The epic Western crime saga is available now on digital. Rated R from Apple Original Films and Paramount Pictures. This is all our listeners had to do for a chance to win. We asked them to send us an email and tell us your favorite Martin Scorsese film from every decade, the 1970s through the 2010s. And we chose five
0: winners at random. Josh, let's list them. Our first winner is Emma Sabisky. Emma went from the 1970s with Taxi Driver. The 80s, After Hours, my personal favorite movie from Marty. I'm definitely a participant in the Gen Z After Hours renaissance. Sorry, Emma says. I think that's a personal apology to me because I don't care for After Hours. In the really? 90s, oh, man. Emma chose Goodfellas from the 2000s. Not a huge fan of anything from this era, she says. But if I had to pick, I'd say The Departed. And from the 2010s, Emma went with The Irishman. The Departed.
1: Slander there is hard for me to take. We also heard from Omid. You know what? He had the same list.
0: Okay. Taxi Driver, After Hours, Goodfellas, The Departed, The Irishman. Here's Jillian Pecoraro, our other winner. These are my favorites, not his best. Important Hmm. distinction there. Jillian from the 1970s, Taxi Driver from the 1980s, the king of comedy. Love that pick. Jillian went with Goodfellas, which she says is the only acceptable answer from the 90s. The Departed took the 2000s, and The Irishman took the
1: 2010s. It's only one new choice there in the King of Comedy, and yes, we've had three winners, and not one of them have yet said Raging Bull for the 80s. We'll see if we remedy that here in a moment. Julian Birchman is also going Taxi Driver in the 70s, After Hours in the 80s, more Goodfellas in The Departed, Love, but yes, the 2010s instead of The Irishman. And you know what? I actually, I actually don't know if you if you really force me to pick. Which film I like better, The Wolf of Wall Street or The Irishman, I'm not sure. But I like that Julian made his pick, the best of the 2010s,
0: The Wolf of Wall Street. Wasn't that our first versus episode, Wolf of Wall Street? Speaking of which, versus a Bradley Cooper, am I right? Would it have been Silver Linings Playbook, another, another no, Bradley no, Cooper effort?
1: Though that's a Bradley Cooper movie and performance I don't love, as I also didn't love Josh
0: American that's Hustle. That's what I'm thinking of. Ding ding yeah. ding! Oh ding. my gosh, American Hustle so much better than The Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> oh
1: come on, so Josh. much better.
0: Oh my goodness, yeah, he, that's right,
1: folks. He he thinks The Wolf of Wall Street isn't as good as American Hustle, and he doesn't like After Hours. Come. Come for Josh. I'm fine. Julian with it. finishes by saying, maybe not the most exciting list. I struggled with whether to choose After Hours or King of Comedy for the 80s, but After Hours won out
0: by a hair. Yeah, Scorsese comedies, maybe not. Not for me oh, anyway. It's a fun movie, Josh. Bryson Beck is our final winner. Going back to the 60s with a yeah. big shave show off wow calling it a bonus pick bryson is that's uh well, I, I called it 19... i actually called it a bonus oh fix. this is you okay yeah. yeah yeah well impressive nonetheless 70s taxi driver here's your raging bull pick for the 80s Thank goodness from bryson 90s goodfellas the 2000 gangs of new york's the 2010s the wolf of wall street and 2020s rolling thunder review Yeah. Bryson, Bryson went Bradley Cooper on us. He wanted to,
1: to impress us with his sixties pick and his twenties pick. I also love rolling thunder review. Thank you to all of our winners. Email us feedback at filmspotting.net. We will set you up with your digital version of Martin Scorsese's killers of the flower moon available. Now let's give a few minutes, Josh, to, you know, what is the number one film at the box office the past two or three weekends Wonka, director Paul King's musical origin story of the famous fictitious chocolate maker. King is best known for 2014's Paddington and its sequel. The film has Timothy Chalamet's chocolate maker arriving in an unnamed European port city famous for its trio of chocolatiers. Slugworth, Fickleburger, and Prodnos, a trio of chocolatiers soon revealed to be a sinister cabal in cahoots with the police, led by chief of police Keegan-Michael Key, and the church, a chocolate-obsessed denomination led by Rowan Atkinson's father, Julius. <laughs> wow, this sounds convoluted, and it kind of is. Wonka's dreams are further dashed when he unwittingly enters indentured servitude to the laundress Mrs. Scrubbit, played by Olivia Colman. We're not and, oh, done yes. yet. No, no, we're not. Hugh Grant, much to, much to your dismay, based on what I saw online, Josh, Hugh Grant shows up as a chocolate-stealing Oompa Loompa who claims to go by the name Lofty. Yeah, let's,
0: let's Here's, just move on
1: if we can. <laughs> Here's Chalamet. Not with you, Grant. Chalamet with one of his fellow captives at Mrs. Scrubbit's, a young girl named Noodle, played by Calla Lane. What are you doing? I'm making chocolate, of course. How do you like it? I don't know. I've never had any. You've never had chocolate? Still, no. Well, lucky for you, Noodle, I have a selection of the world's finest ingredients right here in my travel factory. Whoa. Where to begin? That's the question. I know. Silver linings made of condensed thunderclouds and liquid sunlight. Did you always want to make chocolate?
0: No. Back when I was your age, I wanted to be a magician. So yes, as that synopsis suggested, which I quite enjoyed hearing you say all those names, Adam, this is a movie full of a lot. A lot, it's also a musical, by the way, in case mm. you didn't notice that. um, I don't think they're they're really promoting it that way, but it's a full-on musical. And I will say I enjoyed the songs. They were uh, a little bit a few degrees below some of the Broadway belting type, sure, musicals we get this is this is a little different than that, And I kind of like that. Let's get Hugh Grant out of the way, adam. it's it's not even that I'm so appalled by the performance or the character. I, I'm just like, I'm having physical reactions to this vision on screen that I don't know what to do with. It's going to take some processing. (laughs) It's going to take some purging. Okay. I I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know how. And I need you to at least tell me what you thought of Hugh Grant as an Oompa Loompa.
1: Well, I think... To really process whatever you're going through, we would need to get you down on a couch, please, <laughs> and and do some heavy therapy. It's better repression. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what your reaction is. Really, it it didn't have an impact on me, really, one way or another. I thought, I thought it was fine. Is it a little weird looking at? fully grown Hugh Grant's face on that tiny little body and always aware of the digital nature of it. I felt that watching this film a lot weird is a word. Yeah. And yet the production design and the intricacy of it, as you would expect from the guy who made Paddington is overall one of the strengths of the film. And as you said, there's a lot here. It's basically, I wasn't expecting this. This movie is what you would get if you mixed the whimsy and the general good naturedness of the Paddington movies with the greatest showman, there's your Broadway belting, mm. but there's a lot of similarity in terms of the the characters. Yeah, I can see that. And Jesus Christ, superstar, <laughs> where you have you have Wonka delivering. I can't wait for this to come up on Think Christian, Josh, or maybe maybe you can pay me to write the freelance essay. He delivers salvation to the poor and needy. Yeah, via the gospel of chocolate.
0: Yeah, um, he's, he's, hey. Let me just tell you something is, is in the works along those it? lines. Okay. I'm not okay, writing great. it, I,
1: but I'm editing it. I haven't been part of those editorial meetings, but I'm on the same wavelength. We see him here battling the the pharisees that that trio, that cabal who yeah. want to quash his little revolution. It's imaginative, it's sweet, it's overwhelmingly well meaning. I had a decent enough time with it. I think that's the best thing I can say about it okay it was fine there's There's a moment early on where we meet those those characters, the villains and Slugworth says a good chocolate should be simple and fickle Gruber says whereas this they're they're replying to some chocolate of his that they've just tried for the first time and they clearly enjoyed the taste of it but they have to deny that fickle Gruber says whereas this it's just and prodno says weird and it made me think this played out over the course of the film anyway it made me think I wish this film had maybe a little bit more weirdness and by weird Mm. I don't mean more whimsy or more bizarre magic and other other characters. I mean, the weird, that's kind of the, the derangement that we get. I I don't even want to compare this movie on any level to the wilder one. It's not fair. And that movie is so important to me and I love it so much. Yeah. Yeah. That's not fair at all. Obviously it isn't fair. It isn't fair, but I do wonder if I would have enjoyed this movie even a little bit more. If I got some of those, those hints yeah. of that that Gene Wilder version of Wonka. If we got something about Wonka that made him feel just not so nice. Right. <laughs> and 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 well meaning, as I said, but someone who who really sometimes can't totally stop himself from from indulging.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: and that that derangement, I'll use that word again, is something I felt like was maybe lacking a little bit from this Wonka.
0: Absolutely. I mean, th- this is much more of a a safer children's film. I know Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is a children's film. This is way safer. This is this is like this is essentially if Paddington Bear had sat down and read you Roll Dolls charlie Mm -hmm. and the chocolate factory that's the version we're getting here there's very little roll doll in this which means there's none of the derangement of gene wilder's wonka this wonka has nothing to do with that wonka and i think i suspected that going in which is probably why i came out with it about where you did i I had a good time i had a good time with this i think its strengths are when it leans into actually the paddington-ness of it, uh, and the familiarity of Paul King's work on those two Paddington films. And that includes Timothy Chalamet's performance. There are maybe two instances where he tries to channel Wilder to get a little like, Ooh, I threw one at you there and it doesn't work. It's like, just, just like stay far away from Gene Wilder, move closer to Paddington and you'll be okay, Timothy. And when he does that, I think he gives a fine, genial, you know, lovable performance. Yes. Even. So, so that's good. As I said, I like the musical numbers. Also, this goes back to King as well. The production design, Uh, everything from the sets to the props, that that little suitcase that Willy Wonka carries that he opens up and becomes this candy-making factory is just wonderful to look at and see how the contraptions work. And there's so much of that. The performances are cranked up to 11, deliciously so, I thought, yeah. quite enjoyable. Yeah. So this had the chance, when this was first announced as a project, aside from Paul King's involvement— to be a horrendous disaster and a desecration of our childhoods. Uh, I think we're in a much better place <laughs> than that. And so maybe what you're hearing from both of us, as much as we love the original Willy Wonka film, is yeah.
1: relief. I know that we disagree on this, but I will tell you that as I was watching the film and I was thinking about how I wanted maybe a little bit more of that that darkness, but really just a little bit more of that danger with the the character, mm-hmm. I actually caught myself... <laughs> thinking what would a version of this movie directed by Tim Burton look like and then I had to remind myself that we got that version and I
0: I hated that yeah and I would say it's it's I like Charlie the chocolate factory from Burton better than this I, I think it has what you're looking for actually there's a little more doll in that and I know Johnny Depp problematic figure but I think he's tapping into something that is at least unique and discomforting in that film, that works. I, he's, <laughs> yeah. he's almost okay. as discomforting as Hugh Grant's Oompa Loompa. Let me just say uh-huh. that. He, he is discomforting.
1: He's also just resoundingly boring in that role what? as Wonka. But maybe, what? yeah. But maybe, maybe back boring. in 2005 or whatever year it was, Josh, I was too caught up in the comparison to Wilder, which I'm trying to
0: avoid now. I mean, yeah, he he goes, uh, how do we find ourselves here? He goes in very different directions than Wilder, which, as I'm saying, is the right choice for Chalamet here, too. And so I think that worked for that worked for Depp. And for the most part, it worked for Chalamet here choosing to be a cuddly Wonka.
1: Yeah, I liked I liked the one moment that felt to me like a clear nod to Wilder that I thought worked. And there were others like you said, that maybe weren't quite as effective, but there's a little eyebrow raise he gives at one point Mm -hmm. that I, that I, that I liked. I thought, I thought he appropriately channeled wilder there. Otherwise it did feel like he was giving his own performance at his own spin on the character, which I respect. And I thought it was mostly effective, even if I think we both agree, it just doesn't come anywhere close to matching the charisma or magic of that original, that original turn. But then again, few comedy musical performances do. Wonka isn't the only high-profile musical release this holiday season, though. I still need to see it, but you have caught up with The Color Purple. It's playing in wide release as well. This is based on Alice Walker's 1982 novel, which was originally adapted for the screen in 85 by Steven Spielberg. Despite becoming a footnote in Spielberg's career, it seems, it was nominated for 11 Oscars, including Best Picture. The musical adaptation originally ran on Broadway from 2005 to 2008. An even more celebrated revival ran from 2015 to 2017, winning the best revival, Tony. This new film adaptation is directed by Blitz Bazawule, whose previous film was the Beyonce collaboration Black is King. The Color Purple is set in rural Georgia in the early 1900s, and the story covers about 30 years in the life of a character named Celie, played as an adult by Fantasia Marino. Celie suffers much. She's got an abusive father. She's separated from a beloved sister. She's forced into a marriage with an abusive husband, played by Coleman Domingo. Things only start to look up when she becomes friendly with her husband's mistress, a singer, Suge Avery, played by Taraji P. Henson. Let's go ahead and hear a little of Henson as Suge. Now there's something about good loving that all you ladies should know.
0: If you want to light your man on fire. You gotta start it real slow. Keep on turning up the voltage till that man became a glow. Like you switching on a light bulb, watch the juice begin to flow.
1: Josh over on Letterboxd, you opened your review by writing, "If a novel is unfilmable anyway, why not take a wild shot at it?" tell us what what made the novel unfilmable and how wild is Bazulule shot at it
0: yeah first off you know walker's novel has has become a cultural landmark by the fact that we've gotten two film versions of it and this Broadway production, and it is one of the great American novels. So for anyone who has not uh, made the time for it yet, I'm glad this movie is around that will maybe encourage folks to do that. It's incredible. It's an it's has an epistolary structure. So it's basically letters between Celia and her sister who get separated as teens and then are, you know, they, they write back and forth, I'm not going to spoil anything and it's interesting because Celia's letters begin addressed to God, they transition to her sister. There are so many levels of items you know you know concerns of sociology, theology, gender, sexuality all at play in this dense book that is gripping on an intimate personal level as well, hearing someone write these letters. So how is a movie going to do that? I think Spielberg's film is a good movie. Uh it's nowhere near the novel. And so what I mean by this is it sounds crazy to try to turn that into a musical, right? And there are, I think, limitations to that. I do think in this film version, a lot of these musical numbers feel not so much out of place, like they're making light of the heavy material here, but they felt truncated to me and they they do flatten all those layers I mentioned a little bit. Um, they can't explore them as deeply yet. What the movie does, and, and I think this is huge, is that. It preserves what the novel had as a sense of personal testimony. This comes back to the letter writing, right? The best numbers here, the musical numbers, and this makes sense because musical numbers are so emotional. They capture the anger and the exaltation of Sealy's experience in particular, but also all these other characters. And I think Danielle Brooks is a standout, as so many people have said. And I think Fantasia Barino as Seeley gets a number, I'm here, that does manage to capture what this character has not only been through, but also this this inrushing of joy about getting out on the other side. And music has a way of doing things like that, that even the written word maybe can't. And so it's a somewhat ill-fitting project, but in the ways that it works... And manages to honor the novel, I think The Color Purple, this The Color Purple, does really work. You know, not among my top 10, top 20 films of the year, but one I do encourage people to see. The Color Purple is out in wide release, and
1: I'm eager to catch up with it, Josh, not only because you've recommended it, and many critics have, but confession time, I'm very familiar with the Alice Walker novel, though it's been too many years or more years than I'd like to count, but... Shout out to my uh, Images of God and Modern Fiction tutorial class freshman year as an undergrad. I think Color Purple was maybe the first, first book we read in that class and the first book that we had to write about. And I mention that only because it underscores how embarrassed I am that I haven't had a chance to see any of the stage versions. I do still need to catch up with this film, as I said. And it's one of the four or five Spielberg movies. Mm. I still need to see. So despite my appreciation for the novel, I'm not aware or I'm not familiar with any other (laughs) version of this, any screen or stage version of this. And I really do need to remedy that. Now, I know your answer to this just because you're this way. It's not quite the book in the movie in this case. But are you going to insist Or would you insist that I watch the Spielberg before I watch this new one?
0: No, they're, they're very, they're very different creatures, I would say. So, so I don't think, I don't think that's necessary. And I also don't think, I don't think you need to reread the novel either. I'm not, I'm not, you know, it goes back to kind of our, our argument about this. I don't read the novels necessarily to like use them as a point of comparison with a film. It's more to like give them their due as a piece of art that came first. So Mm -hmm. you've read it, you did that. You know it, and yeah, now's now's as good a time as any to to watch the Spielberg. I, I think you'll find it fascinating. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd. Adam is at film spotting, and I'm at Larson on Film. The current film spotting poll has us asking you to choose your most anticipated 2024 film, Dune two, or we have a couple other options for you. You can find that at filmspotting.net. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. FilmSpotting is listener supported. You can join the FilmSpotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early and ad free. You'll also get a weekly newsletter, monthly bonus shows, and access to the entire FilmSpotting archive. That archive includes reviews of Bradley
1: Cooper's A Star Is Born, episode 700. We did that show with Michael Phillips, our top five movie duets. We also did talk about Black Hat, previous film from Michael Mann, episode 523. All of this before your time. Well, actually, no, you were here for Black Hat, Josh. Public Enemies, episode 263, was before you, as was Miami Vice, going way back to number 117. If you'd like to find those episodes and any others in the archive, you can do that, filmspottingfamily.com. Out in wide release this weekend, you can see the new Jason Statham film, The Beekeeper. He's a one-man campaign of vengeance in this new film from david Ayer. the book of clarence is out this is from the director of the 2021 western black exploitation homage the heart of a fall a tongue-in-cheek biblical epic with lakeith stanfield david oyelowo alfrey woodard and james mcavoy as well as benedict cumberbatch also in that one you can see mean girls a movie adaptation of the broadway musical that was itself adapted from the 2004 Tina Fey scripted film. You're the one who coined the term reheat. What do
0: you call this? I mean, this is just, it's a reheat, obviously. That, that's the yeah. point of the term, but this is the world we live in now, apparently. It's the, the <laughs>
1: snake eating its, itself, isn't it? <laughs> the the snake in the microwave. Yeah, Pixar's soul is out. This is part of Disney Pixar's plan to give their pandemic era films a proper theatrical release. Releases of Turning Red
0: and Luca are to come. Soul was your number two film of 2020. I forgot that. And this is the first time hearing it. It makes me realize I don't think I've ever seen Soul on a big screen, that being no. the case. So yeah, I might have to track this
1: down. Streaming, you can see *Lift*, starring Kevin Hart, leading an international heist crew to lift $500 million in gold from a passenger plane at 40,000 feet. The usually reliable F. Gary Gray Directs and in limited release one. I can't wait to finally see Occupied City, the new Steve McQueen documentary about the Nazi occupation of Amsterdam. This is playing in Chicago at the Gene Siskel Film Center. Oh, and Jonathan Glazer's Zone of Interest, my number 10 film of the year, Michael Phillips, number six of the year. Josh, just off your list at number 12. Good film. See it if you can. Next week, it is our 2023 rap party live in LA. You can hear that here on the podcast and radio, but of course, if you're hearing this in time, we'd love to see you come out. Regal LA Live is the 2023 Rap Party Live 715 Showtime, Saturday, January 13th. More info about tickets at filmspotting.net.
0: Filmspotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening.
1: This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported.